0: Thank you um, very much, Lee. Um, I've got a confession, which is that after, after last week, I just felt I'd served you poorly uh, in the way I handled the material. So, okay. Now, some people said that they, they thought it was helpful, but that's great. That was very kind of you. Um, and uh, I think my, my reflection was, and it's partly a reflection of, you know, talking about this in different contexts as well, but in in the local church... Um, We do have to begin with reality, and we have to begin with people, and we have to begin with the the pastoral issues around. So what I want to do is just for these first sort of 10, 15 minutes is just stand back, and rather than plunge into the detail like I did last time, just to stand back and look at some of the bigger questions. And um, I think as I was reflecting during the week, um, it felt to me as though we need to understand a bit what the shape is of the situation we're in but what is this moment like and I think in, the, in in connection with the debate around same-sex relationships I think two two big things struck me in terms of uh, paradoxes or tensions uh, and it's something that I just keep um, being aware of and the first tension is a, a pair of issues and one is that Uh, There's just no doubt, I think, that the issue of same-sex relationships, gay sexuality, absolutely dominates our culture. I don't know if you are consumers of the media generally, uh, but you just turn on your television and sex, sexuality, gay sexuality is there, I mean you only have to wait five minutes I just listened to the archers on the way here and there was a debate around marriage and sexuality Um, uh, earlier on the day I was watching a program and it came up again Um, I'm afraid we are uh, strictly Come Dancing addicts in our family at least we, once we get into the series we stay with it uh, Johannes, one of the professionals is gay and very evidently so and I don't know if you watch Strictly you notice that last week he's been knocked out with his partner, last week he danced in a, in a professional's dance he took the female part now you won't, may not have noticed it, nobody signposted it but it was there. If you're aware, if you're looking, if your antennae are out, then you'll see it. Um, I'm also a bit of a pointless addict, so I quite like the end of my sort of the main part of my working day, five fifteen, watching Pointless. Great fun. Um, pointless celebrities. Yesterday evening, out of the eight contestant, three were gay. Um, I'm a I'm a fan of um, when it's on of um, uh, just a minute. And a couple of years ago, they did a a, a television version of it, which didn't actually work. They packed it up after one series. But it was really funny. In one one of the shows, Paul Merton suddenly burst out, am I the only straight person here? And the answer was, he was. (laughs) So gay sexuality, gay culture does really dominate our society, Western society, particularly in a media context. But secondly, here's the paradox, which is that gay people, especially young gay people, uh, still, experience rejection. Again, one of the main issues in bullying in schools is bullying around um, sexuality. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of interpretation to be done around that. But again, if you're um, involved with schools at all, if you see under the radar what's going on, you will know that you're so gay is uh, an insult. It's a pejorative term. So we are culturally in a... Uh, A paradoxical moment where on the one hand large parts of our culture are very much pushing an agenda of gay sexuality or even further of of any kind of sexuality you want on the other hand there are lots and lots of currents pushing back in the other direction. I think my observation for example particularly in working men's culture is it is not gay friendly I don't think there's any real doubt about that So that's a paradox and a tension that's going on in our culture. Um, Within the church and within the church's boundaries around culture, again, I think it seems to me there are two paradoxical or two things in tension. And one is, and this is very often the practical question which is brought up, is that this issue is a test for whether uh, Christians are loving or not. Are they accepting? Um, One of the couples on Strictly, so I don't get all my illustrations in life from Strictly Come Dancing, but it's a very interesting window into culture. Um, One of the couples, my name's gone blank. You'll be able to tell me who it is if you're a Strictly fan. She was very much into the uh, drag scene. Michelle. Michelle, okay. So Michelle last night kind of gave her testimony, and her testimony was she was a struggling young person, and it was it was drag culture and gay culture which made her feel at home and welcomed her. She and she 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 burst into tears. That you know, she said, "You know, as a struggling young person, these people were my family. These people were him. I don't know any of the details of her background, but that is the kind of test certainly that the church is facing from the outside. Do we love people? Do we accept them as they are? But that sits, I think, for us in strong tension with the question of how do we read scripture? Are we are we good at reading scripture, making sense of it? Are we good at, on the one hand, recognizing that when we open the Bible, we're wanting to hear what God says to us and speaks to us, and we trust it. On the other hand, at a human level, when you open the Bible, you are going on a cross-cultural journey, and you're entering a world where there are different assumptions and different cultural norms for the people who've written these texts and to whom they're written. And thats I think those two tensions are the reason why we are finding this such a, a, a testing issue. I just also want to stand back and have a big picture because some of this came out in discussions. Uh, I just want to just run through what it seems to me there are two sets of challenges to the church's traditional teaching on sexuality, sex and marriage. The first group of questions, and I find it quite interesting that there's a larger, it seems to me there's a larger set of challenges from within the church than from without. Um, and the first one is one we, we looked at with uh, Matthew Vines, uh, and the challenge is, uh, although many people read the, the text, the few texts that there are, and they think they know what it means, the challenge comes saying, no, those texts do not mean what we have traditionally thought those to mean so there is a group of folk Matthew Vines is one of them a number of others um, Jane and Zanna Church may be one of those as well um, and a number of scholars who will say Jonathan Tallon who teaches on the North North Northeastern ordination training course um, they will say no the texts don't mean what we thought they meant they belong to a particular context, or the words don't mean quite the same thing, or the narrative is in quite the same shape. So there's a whole cluster of challenges going on. James Brownson is someone I mentioned last time who puts that argument forward. I think my simple response to that is that, actually, when you look in detail, as we plunged into last week, those arguments don't actually stand up to scrutiny. And the question is, as a church, the Church of England which believes that it takes its, its doctrine from scripture the question is how do we engage with those debates and actually say something persuasive and coherent because i know for many people in my experience they say well look there's experts on one side there's experts on the other we can't know anything and so it raises the question of can we be confident in what scripture says i think we can and that's why i wrote the Grow booklet but that is one big challenge Here's the second challenge that comes. This is a different kind of challenge. Uh, This actually, out in the big wide world, is certainly internationally in the church and in scholarship, is um, a more common view. And that is that, yes, the texts do mean what we've traditionally thought them to mean. But, if you like, they are law. They're text of law. They say what can be done and what cannot be done the dominant narrative of scripture is a narrative of love, God's love. And that God's law and God's love sit in tension with one another. Too often the church has followed the letter of the law and done so in an unloving way and that's the case in this debate. And so that view goes, where there's a tension or a contradiction between love and law, we must take the side of love. So in the end we must say, actually these texts yes they do say what they said but they're not binding on us because they are not loving therefore the love principle takes priority and i think many folk in the church find that quite persuasive i'm not going to take a straw poll but i'd be interested to hear your responses to that and it sounds as though it's kind of a knockdown argument the real problem with that is that it raises the question was Paul loving? Was Jesus loving? I don't think there's any real evidence that Paul is doing anything other than translating the take, teaching of Jesus and taking it into a Gentile context. Again, it's often said, well, Jesus says nothing about same-sex relations. Well, the most obvious reason for that was in first century Judaism, same-sex sexual relating was so beyond the pale that no one within Israel would have raised that for Jesus. So the question simply didn't arise. All the evidence is that Jesus, in all his teaching, including around sexuality, uh, if anything, strengthened Old Testament law. So there's no question that if the issue had been raised, Jesus would have uh, uh, endorsed the teaching of Leviticus, just as Paul does quite explicitly. And if in the end we want to say well, love principle must triumph over the teaching of this law, what we're actually saying is, we know how to love better than Jesus and Paul did. And it seems to me that is a problematic claim. Here's um, the third uh, common argument. Um, This, again, I think is something that happens within the church, amongst Christians debating this, and this is the claim that the biblical writers did not know what we know. So in other words, the challenge we have today is around loving, consensual, same-sex relationships. We know that there is such a thing as sexual orientation, and the biblical writers didn't know that, so they simply weren't equipped to address the question that we are facing. And again, I think for a lot of people that's a very appealing argument. I think the difficulty there is that we need to recognize the nature of the subject, If you want to say, well, the Bible doesn't tell us whether or not we should drive a petrol car or a diesel car, or whether we should take public transport, you might say, well, it's unreasonable to expect the Bible to speak about that because that's something that the Bible doesn't know of, doesn't know about cars and the internal combustion and all that kind of stuff. But notice that that is a very high level and a very specific technological question. When we get to issues around sexuality, the body, marriage... These are not detailed high-level issues. These are actually fairly fundamental, core, if I can use the word, archetypal issues around what it means to be human. And if we if we want to claim that the Bible doesn't know of our realities, in the end what we're saying is scripture actually is unable to speak to the human condition. The question of sex and sexuality is a pretty fundamental issue around uh, what it means to be human what it means to be um, bodily made in the image of God. And also, I think the texts do address those issues in all sorts of ways. I think the fourth challenge, and again, that came up in questions um, uh, last week, is this. We've changed our mind on other issues. Why can't we change our mind on this one? And the two subjects that come up time and time again are slavery uh, and the prison of women's teaching, and also related to that marriage and divorce uh two or three major issues and again it's not easy to make a broad brush statement to say nothing ever changes or everything can always change the question is for us which things might we need to rethink which things having looked again do we say no we're confident that scripture is consistent here and continues to apply And again, we need to look at the shape of the arguments. For example, take the question of slavery. It's often said, well, Christians endorsed slavery. The New Testament doesn't specifically prohibit slavery, but now we've changed our mind and Christians think that slavery is wrong. Well, at least I hope you agree with that. But of course, that argument isn't as simple as that. For a start, the New Testament texts, they weren't in a position to speak to, as a minority group, a major Social structure. Scholars estimate that up to forty percent, at different times, up to forty percent of the Roman Empire population was slave, enslaved. If you if you abolished slavery, the whole empire would collapse economically. So, a Pharisaical Jew called Paul, who's following Jesus, is not in a position to undermine or call for. Uh, the fundamental change in the structure but actually when you look at the text of the new testament they undermine every assumption of slavery in in roman culture a slave had no rights a slave was owned by the slave's master to the extent that if the slave's master had sex with the slave's wife that child belonged to the master so the slave has no rights whatsoever when you look at the way the new testament talks about slaves and slavery it actually undermines all those assumptions. And Paul, even Paul says in, Col- in Colossians 4.1, he even says, Masters, treat your slaves with equality. Which is a radical questioning of the institution of slavery. And of course, actually, all through Christian history, Christians have opposed slavery. Uh, so Thomas Aquinas said that slavery was, was, should be prohibited within Christendom. So effectively ruled out slavery in medieval Europe. So we need to look at each of these issues and we need to ask the question, how do we discern between issues where we need to go back and revise our thinking on the one hand and other issues which we say, actually, no, this is really core. This is a clear, consistent teaching of scripture. For example, just because we've changed our mind on other issues, I don't suppose many of us here would say we need to rethink the identity of who Jesus was, whether he was the son of God and whether or not he died for our sins. We'd all agree there is some core stuff which doesn't change with the view, and other things where we've actually had to rethink. And the, the, the real question is, where does sexuality belong there? So those are four pretty big questions, I think. And those are just the ones inside the church. I think the ones outside uh, are... Oh, you may be aware of others, uh, but I think these are the... Uh, oh, sorry, I've gone too far. Whoops. Okay, here's um, another three clusters, I think, of of, of questions. The first one, I think, is still sits on the boundary, really, between questions inside the church and questions outside. The first is, people say, you know, traditional teaching, the church's position on sexuality is driving people away. We're supposed to be a missional church. We're supposed to be engaging with our culture. We're supposed to be inviting people to Jesus. And that the church's teaching on sexuality actually puts people off and it hinders our mission. I think the difficulty with that is there's simply no evidence to support it. I know there's a narrative, I know people claim that. Statistically that is not the case. I don't know if you're aware of which churches in Nottingham are growing at the moment. I don't know how much you get involved with other churches. Well let me tell you, Trent Vineyard have just started a third service on a Sunday. And Cornerstone Evangelical, have just started a third service on a Sunday, and they've also just done a church plant into just down the road from me in Chilwell. And across the country, the churches that, that maintain the traditional position on sexuality are actually the ones that are either resisting decline or growing, and in particular the ones that are attracting young people. And I think that connects with one of those tensions in culture, Although, as it were, at high level, our culture is very sort of pro-gay, pro-gay sexuality. Actually, on the ground, I think people have got very much more mixed views. Um, Here's a second objection from outside the church. Why is the church obsessed with sex? Aren't there more important things for us to be thinking about? To which my answer is, yes, indeed. (laughs) And believe you me, it's not Christians who are constantly raising the question of sex. And within the church, it's not, I find experience in General Synod, it's not those of us who believe in the church's current teaching who are constantly raising the issue in debate. It is those who want to see the church changed. So sex is important. It does matter. But actually, it's not the church that's obsessed. And at the last of these three major areas, I think, of pressure from the outside is the claim that denying people's rights is unreasonable and is unloving. And that's a big question, and it's a question I think that uh, touches on all different aspects of Christian faith, actually. And we, again, these are are issues we can drill down into more detail, but Christianity has always been at odds with uh, culture and, and cultural assumptions that have been made. So there's some, there's some big challenges there and I think that's why uh, it's a complex issue and that's why there's more than we can really cover in detail uh, in three evenings. But at least um, the question is we need to uh, um, start the conversation. I just want to finish this section and then we'll just have a pause and get you to discuss uh, amongst yourselves. Um, I just want to uh, finish this a bit by um, looking at some headlines in terms of practical and pastoral issues. And I guess the the simplest and most succinct and most important practical question is simply this. Here I am in church on a Sunday, leading a service, taking part in a service, a member of congregation, and someone introduces them to me themselves to me, and they say, knowing what I believe, knowing the church's teaching, and they say I'm gay. And this happens to me and it's happened to me I think I mentioned before the beginning of the first session that uh, in, when I was studying theology and training for ordination my best friend came out to me as gay I was the first person that he'd spoken to the first person that he told to told this to and obviously if someone comes out to you as gay that's different from simply um, saying that they're gay and the issue is what do you say how do you respond How should we respond as a church? How should we respond as a church which has a particular teaching on sex and marriage? And this is my answer. You're very welcome. It's lovely to see you. God loves you. Now there's a sense in which I want to say and that's it. Um, But actually that's never just it and not because this is a gay person but because this is a human being and the same I would say the same about anybody and I guess you might want to say to me why do I need to ask the question don't we just say the same thing to everyone yes we do we welcome people we engage we incorporate them into life and we want to encourage them to discover for themselves what God's love in Jesus means for them And again, this particular issue holds certain challenges, but they're challenges which actually we face uh, whoever we're talking to and whoever we are. And the question then is, what does God's love mean for me? When I, as a struggling teenager, with a very extensive vocabulary, because that was a way of dealing with my insecurities that I felt in a boys' public school in London, what did it mean for me to discover that God loved me? It meant a fundamental sense of affirmation. It meant discovering a sense of belonging, a bit like um, Michelle did on uh, on Strictly Come Dancing last night. Uh, It meant transformation. It meant that some things, some aspects of who I was, some of the ways I felt about myself, some of the ways I understood myself, some of the ways I behaved, just actually naturally changed and fell away. And then over time it also meant that there were some things as I began to learn what it meant to receive the spirit of God uh, who pours God's love into our heart. Paul says in Romans what it means then to live by that spirit and to walk in God's ways in obedience. And that's true for any of us. And the number of the question is what does God's love mean for anyone and particularly for those who might want to disagree with the church's teaching in this area. And um, for me, the goal of this, as uh, Paul sets out in Ephesians 4, he says the goal is that people should grow into the fullness of the stature of the, of the fullness of Christ who has our head. And that's why we do need to dig down into all those other questions, because in the end the question for us is, what does Christ-like sexuality look like? And that's why... I went through all those issues around in the the first session, those eight affirmations about sex and sexuality, about the fact that we're bodily, uh, that um, we are made male and female, and God's design is that we should enjoy sexual union between one man and one woman, but that sex is not of ultimate importance. And sex does not define, sex and sexuality don't define who we are. We are defined in Christ, who we are, made in his image, male and female so i think that's a bit more helpful instead sort of standing back uh, and 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 giving a kind of uh, a big picture and i guess we could have 5 minutes five, 5 minutes or more if you just want to turn to the person next to you and rather than ask questions of me i think it'd be interesting to reflect on those things those questions those practical pastoral things and just maybe share and say okay in either my context or in our context in our congregation these are the particular challenges or these are the issues we need to wrestle with or you might want to say just share something that struck you out of, out of that list. Is that okay? So just five minutes turn to your neighbour or turn to those around you and say you know of that cluster of issues what are the big things what are the big challenges where we are? Is that okay? Off you go.